copper. China's got some copper. Oh, Does man. China not have copper? I mean, I don't know where. I don't know. Does where China not have is. copper? I got some copper in my house right now. You gonna come cut out my pipes? <laughs> is that your investment? Skippy needs pennies. Dougal's buys yeah. copper. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Hey there, sir. Are you a rap artist? Dude. That is amazing. No, so I got a, uh, I'm trying to figure out my my setup here. So I think there's going to be some, uh, some reverb going on in the room. You got a shot, I assume. Yep. Got, got the first shot on Monday, which felt like, uh, I don't know, like an adrenaline rush. I'm like 10% superhero right now. Your, your behavior is starting to get a little more risque. Oh dude. You know how many parties I went to? Zero. <laughs> Zero. Zero. Um, but, but it does, it, um, it doesn't feel any different with regard to like a behavior or anything like that, but it like, it just, it feels like the start of a new era potentially. Let's just kick us off, uh, real quick, just with a shout out to my boy, Roy Williams, uh, hell of a career. And, uh, you know, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Deagles. You know, I support the blue devils. So it's, you know, sorry, you go out in the first round. We talked about yeah, going I mean, out on top. Is this how you do that? Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's talk about 33 years worth of coaching for Roy versus Coach K. Uh, much better winning percentage. Uh, more conference titles. He basically, if you do ratios of How many wins, Olympic gold medals? titles and national, <laughs> Roy does not have an Olympic gold medal. Do you know why? Because he likes to golf. All right. This is a false narrative you tell yourself to keep yourself calm. That's right. All right. We better jump into it. Um, so what's on the agenda today? You want to start off with a, a quiz? We gotten fun with the quizzes? Oh, do I ever? Yeah, this is for me. This is to me, make me look like an idiot. Uh, well, I'm not going to drop a quiz for myself. That would be be quite interesting. <laughs> All, All right, right, go. So let's do it. So, um, last week we talked about uh, how you got to stay the course, right? And I talked a little bit about recent performance of my portfolio and then how that mapped historically. Well. After that, I don't know if uh, if he if he felt me, but I'm, I'm gonna assume he did. Maybe listen to the podcast. Uh, ben Carlson dropped an article called "Owning the Best Stocks is Hard" on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, which kind of follows its similar similar theme. And so, I'd love to drop a, a few, just a handful of names at you, and I want you to tell me what their biggest drawdowns, their biggest drops were. Oh, I'm so excited about this! Hit it. Ready for this? So yeah. these are these are high flyers. Amazon after the dot com bubble. Uh 88%. 95%. But I mean, okay. yeah, direction. So since then, Amazon's also had two 50% plus drops and five 25% plus drops. Microsoft after the dot com bubble. Uh 74. 75. Okay. Oh man. Look at you. Oh man. Look, Look at, at that. You. You've been reading your investor amnesia. I know this uh, stuff. And, and so Microsoft took 17 years to get back to its 1999 levels. That's how how crazy that bubble was. Uh, Netflix, which we all know 
one of the best performing stocks in the, over the last 20 years, what was its decline? This is not after the dot-com bubble because it didn't go public till 2003. Uh, gosh, it's like, I think it's in the 80s. Yep, it's about 80%, a little over 80% 80, 80 decline in 2012. So just nine years ago, folks could have gotten quite the discount uh, on that, but yeah. you never know at the time. So, um, and Monster Beverage up 125,000% since it, it uh, went public. One of the hottest stocks the last 20 years too. Yeah, so Monster, one of the best performing stocks in the last 20 years. Absolutely. Um, I see this chart all the time. This is a very popular chart. Uh, popularized by Morgan Housel, actually, not Ben Ooh. Carlson. So, you know, uh, but I think the chart actually came from uh, Michael. Oh, I'll, I'll get the name. I'll throw Remember? it on the Twitter. <laughs> no, no. It's an Excel. B. Jordan. All right. I, so I totally guessed with this one. I don't know. But it's significant. Um, even the best performing stock or one of the best. I think it's still in the 80s. Uh, it's fallen 60% plus four times. And two of those, it was down 90%. Yeah. This is, I'll tell you what this is and what this is not, though, just to be clear. Um, this is a, as we were talking about last time, if you have a investment hypothesis, right, backed by data, you have conviction and you're following a philosophy, stay the course. It's not saying like, no matter what's happening, don't do your, your analysis, don't always assume things are going to bounce back, right? You talked last time about how there are some stock markets that have gone to zero. The U.S. stock market's kind of always, it's always rebounded, always gone up. And since 1980, 40% of all U.S. stocks that have experienced 70% plus declines have not come back to yeah. even, right? So stocks do go down and not. But uh, the point, I, I thought this article was really interesting because um, it was feeding a little bit off of... Um, off of what Bill Gurley said in the recent Masters in Business um, interview. Did you listen to that one? I haven't caught that yet. No, I will, though. It's good. Um, Barry Ridholtz has a, a podcast called Masters in Business where he interviews just big, big folks in investing in business. And he interviewed um, uh, Bill Gurley, early Gurley, as we talked about last time, Bill Gurley recently. And Bill Gurley was saying that um, that basically it's like it's hard to own. He was specifically talking about Amazon. But he was saying like it's really difficult to like to stay the course with some companies like this, because you see, you might see a 3x increase, right? And you say, oh, I, I want to sell, right? That company like Amazon, Amazon's a rarity, right? But it might go up by orders of magnitude bigger than that. And Ben Carlson is saying it's also hard to own these stocks for the long term because they have these really significant drawdowns. Like you lose 90% of a stock. You have to really well, believe in that or be a long-term investor. To yeah, there's so much going on there, right? One is it speaks to diversification because it would have been idiotic for you to put 100%, not you, but someone to put 100% of their portfolio in Amazon in, say, 1999. And just when they're down 90 plus percent, just be like, oh, it's cool. I'm good. Uh, there's no chance of failure yeah. here. And then just to ride through it. So that speaks to diversification. It also speaks to something I think we've talked about before, but I've definitely written about it. Great companies aren't great investments, right? So you mentioned how long it took Microsoft to get back after their massive drop. Um, same with Cisco, same with a bunch of other good companies. Uh, you have to keep valuation in mind when you purchase the thing. But what I love about it is uh, there's lots of purchase opportunities. So you can get these great companies at sometimes as much as 90% off. Um, a valuation that probably started that wasn't a fair valuation, you know, it was probably overvalued. 
yeah. when it started, but it still comes down 90%. Now, the other thing that I feel like it's just important to mention is I'll probably get the phrase wrong, wrong, but you know, a lot of times you go broke trying to catch falling knives, right? And something that's down 80%, if you purchase is down 80% and it actually continues to get down 90%, your investment just got cut in half. So yeah. this is not an easy thing to do. And that negative momentum uh, is tough to flip. And I know well because I, I'm the idiot who buys this stuff and calls it a value investment, right? Yeah. It, when you play with falling knives for quite a while, I guess maybe you get used to how to juggle. Maybe. So oh, thanks man. for participating. Uh, I thought that was I thought that was pretty interesting uh, and important important like psychological lessons as we talk about a lot here. I think just to keep in mind um, while you're thinking about your picks, quiz down. Let me tie that to something. I want to button up from a few weeks back. And this is a little bit of a quiz for you because I want to see what comes off your head. Um, so we've talked about hedging and purchasing bonds and you were on a commodities kick and everything else because of the current valuation of the uh, US stock market. It's expensive. Everyone, basically everyone that knows, everyone that's looking at valuation metrics knows we're in a bubble. They're just, you just don't know when it's going to pop or if it's going to pop or if it's just going to, slowly die off or whatever, right? So we've been talking for a long time about what you do with that information. One thing that I feel like um, we really missed, and I'm sorry we missed it, is uh, thinking outside the box a little bit. What, what were you telling me last week that I don't think outside the box? Yeah, you, you're trapped in that box. Let's see if you're impressed or if I'm still trapped. So let's say you have a thousand bucks sitting around, or, or maybe you have 10,000 bucks sitting around, or maybe you have a hundred thousand bucks sitting around, right? Well, Scrooge um, McDuck? <laughs> My boy. Oh, I love Scrooge. Actually, I love the little the little kids. I don't like Scrooge. Yeah. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yeah. There we go. That's why you're here. Was that, that the type quiz? of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it's important to think about investments that aren't necessarily equities, ETFs, stocks. Uh, Dougal's just, just locked down a house. Dougal's, that allows you so many opportunities and i'm curious if you've thought of any of these things so i i assume a digital thermostat is like table stakes these days you already got one hooked up nest connected perfect all right so for those who don't know if you want to get nerdy about digital thermostats the return on investment there is like off the charts your payback period is like a little over a year i mean run all the all the numbers it's a no-brainer it's one of the best ways you can spend if you got 200 bucks laying around and you have an old school thermostat that's better than investing in amazon.com. It just is. It's a no-brainer investment. I mean, that, that seems that feels like an aggressive uh okay. aggressive it was take. a little I mean, aggressive. Yeah. Maybe it was a little aggressive. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. keep going. Keep going. So another thing you could do, I'm not saying I'm doing this, but if you we've looked at some return projections for a 60/40 portfolio, 60% stocks, 40% bonds over the next 7 to 10 years let's say that's like maybe 2% a year. In my place, man, I could throw solar panels on the roof and make about 7% a year. Again, like, I'm, I don't know. I'm not ready to pull that trigger. But if you're someone that's not ready to go with equities, you could consider something like that. So Thoughts? is this, when you think about, this is kind of looking at a return, not so much based on, based on cost savings versus based on uh, income generation, right? I mean, which yeah. is, both, both sides of the same coin. Same, right? Because if right. you save... 50 bucks a month on your electrical bill for the next 30 years. Uh, that's the same as someone throwing, it's better than someone throwing you 50 bucks a month in dividends. And it's 
probably better than someone throwing you 50 bucks a month in capital gains because of the taxes associated with those sort of things. I, I just wanted to touch base on this because a lot of times when they throw on the earbuds, our listeners throw on the earbuds and want to hear someone talk investing, you're only thinking equities and, and the like. Um, but but you can be creative here. And some in some cases, especially now, it might be the right time to consider that. Oh, I, I also even sticking within, I think it's it's uh, wise to look beyond equities and, um, and to think about this beyond equities. And I also think it's really wise to think about this from the cost perspective, because oftentimes that's neglected even within equities, right? Um, there, it was, uh, we talked about Bogle, you know, a couple of weeks ago too. And one of the things that, that Bogle really was trying to shout from the rooftops was you have to think about costs. And yeah. if you, if you only look at returns, right, if you look at gross returns, but you're invested in, in funds even that have 1%, 2% fees, right now you're not, you're knocking that off the top. And if you're ignoring, you've brought up uh, tax consequences, like a few times here, if you're ignoring tax consequences, then, I mean, you could be just from the get basically at a disadvantage, right? Um, and one of the things he, he would say to, to keep it simple was if the stock market on average is bringing in an eight to 10% return and you're invested in the stock market with something that costs you 2% a year, then you're always going to be behind the market. Like even by when you think you're investing in the market, right? So it's important yeah. to look at a, a cost for all this stuff. I think it's smart. For the record, revenue minus cost equals profit. Did that just happen? <laughs> Masters oh, in man. business. Barry Ritzholtz, by the way. Oh, it's Ritzholtz? I'm usually, yeah, I'm usually the one yeah. butchering names. Well, we'll see. Maybe it's a silent something in the middle there. <laughs> a silent Z right, <laughs> right there in the middle. <laughs> okay, so that's my, my mini rant. Uh, LED lights are good. I don't mean this to be all home-based stuff, but just uh, give that some time. Uh, there, there are investments that aren't equities that could have favorable returns right now. Yep, and uh, I will pound the table for a digital thermostat, despite Dougal's yelling at me. All right. Where do you want to start in the fishbowl? I, I want to throw you a few quotes, I think. And I want you to tell me when these came from. When they came from? Yeah. Like name a year? <laughs> okay. This is about young companies and a mindset. Never mind that you weren't actually making money. There'd be time for that later. Assuming someone would eventually figure out how to make money from the internet and really fill in from the service. You need to pile all the revenues back into growth. You just had to show that you were the company of the future, not make money. Let me give you a couple more while you're thinking. Yeah. This the is all from the same place? Yeah. The most appealing companies became a state of pure possibilities. The new growth theory argued in obtruse mathematics that wealth came from the human imagination. Wealth wasn't chiefly having more of old things. It was an entirely new things. Growth is just another word for change. God, I mean, I feel like uh, there's like some some Bezosness in there, some Gatesness in there. Then when he talked about uh, like obtuse mathematics, I mean that that one threw me off a bit. Um, Munger, yeah, no. So these are he actually, say most I, of that. I cheated, and this is Michael Lewis from that book I just finished. Uh, the new we new talked thing? a little bit about yeah the new new thing which is actually uh, an old old thing there you go what i'm trying to convey with these is they're 20 years old man and he's he's doing a really good job articulating how at that time specifically with jim Car clark's companies it became about 
selling kind of some would argue for the first time in like modern economics that you're selling this idea and the fundamentals mattered so much less like with netscape it was about this is where we're going who cares if we make money or not like you just it's this vision thing and so that to me pretty much only happens in a bubble when when you get that blind faith where people throw money at you but it also speaks to how silicon valley and the internet have changed things where we're not in a production-based economy necessarily. And so you can sell that narrative more. Well, I, I would actually argue that so I've been in the startup world, right? Primarily in my in yeah. my career. And that's just independent of a bubble. That's just, the, that's where you live, um, especially in your earlier days, because the the likelihood of success for any company that's starting is very small, right? I mean, you're in the yes. 90 plus percent failure. So someone has to believe that if this succeeds, it's going to be absolutely huge, right? Is the, is the broad belief knowing that it probably won't be. And you have to believe in something that doesn't exist today. You're looking at a PowerPoint deck effectively, whether you're selling the internet or selling goods, you still have to, if it's goods, right? Um, I, one of the, the startups that I was an early employee at was a medical device company, right? So it's still in the, in the world of production, but you have to believe that, um, that you can get the supply chain set up in China. You have to believe that you can manufacture it at the price that we're telling folks we can manufacture it at, which is really low. You have to believe that people yeah. will buy it. You have to believe blah, 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 blah. And it, you have to, it's basically selling FOMO. This vision of the world's going to exist. If you believe that that vision of the world's going to exist, then you have to believe that we're going to do it. And you have to believe that that's going to, that if you miss out on that, sorry, it's a, right? I mean, you'll regret it. FOMO. Yeah. I love that perspective. And there's a reason I wanted to talk about this with you because yeah, no, it's really good. It's not just about a tangible device or a non-tangible device necessarily. It is about telling that story. I think what struck me or what I hadn't been thinking about is how much that storytelling matters. One of the the third company, the Healthion piece, was basically um, the CEO at the time came in and his initial plan was, I'm going to write Jim Clark's name to go public, to make enough money that I can be bigger than people that have real products and actually make money. And then I'm going to buy then buy those companies. And then I, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I just hadn't really, that's not how I think about the world. You know, I'm a fundamentals based guy and it's such an interesting thing uh, to think through because sometimes, and I, I think you could argue with Tesla that this has almost come true. Like sometimes if your story's good enough, it doesn't really matter what's happening within the business because you eventually um, outgrow all your problems. Well, it, it, the one thing I'll change there is it does matter what happens in the business because it's really, it's a, uh, you're basically trying to, um, to make time go past to get to the truth. So your, your, your story has to last as long as it takes for you to get there. It's a little, it's a, I don't, I'm going to say fake it till you make it, but, but that sounds more manipulative than yeah. I think sometimes it is at least. But what I mean is like your, your, your story can't last longer, right. Than folks patience, but it only has to last as long as folks patience until you get there. Right. So as, if people, we, we discussed the, you brought up Tesla, we discussed the time aspect of Tesla, as Vitaly said, like you're, you're ignoring time when you buy into some of these things. And so long as like Elon's story can maintain a decade, Tesla could be there. Now it's a 
big bet to believe it's going to like it. That oh, it's still nearly right? impossible if you look at yeah. the math. I mean, because pe- people yeah. are, people are looking like day by day, and so and that that's part of the danger. To bring this back to the bubble, I think part of the danger in a bubble is people are speculating for days or weeks. So it's hard to tell a long term story that's going to last in a bubble. It's actually um, the the best time. I don't have stats on this, but it's a but we, I can give a couple anecdotes. Like the best time to start a company is during a recession. Oh, absolutely. Because because pe- people have well, there's many reasons, but but to to tie to this, um, people have more patience at that point. They're not speculating quite as much during that point, right? Because but during a bubble, when you're doing that during a bubble, like people want returns real quick because there's there's FOMO everywhere. But during a recession, right, which is when if you look at when Uber was started, when Airbnb was started, when Dropbox was started, right, that was all in like the 2007, 2009 timeframe. Um, and so I'm not saying that you have to start during a, a recession. You can't start during a bubble because there are plenty of companies that were started during yeah. bubbles, too. Yeah. But yeah, well, and I, I love your insights on it, but um, I just don't think about the world that way. And so that was really, um, really well done. It's I really enjoyed that read. Uh, I'm also reading and and Diggles, you should pick this up. Um, the acquires multiple, really simple. Maybe we'll break it down next week, but simple, simple value investing strategies and a lot of talk on Buffett for the listeners that kind of want that refresher on Buffett. The thing I love about this book is it gives you all the Buffett knowledge and then says, Oh, but listen, the Skippy way is better than the Buffett way. And here's some numbers to prove it. Um, so check that out. Acquires multiple. Yeah. Acquires right. multiple. My boy, Tobias. Oh, wow. Good, good dude. Uh, all right. What's in your fishbowl? Actually, let, let's, let's continue to feed off of the, uh, the non-equity piece for a moment and do like a briefer on Biden's infrastructure plan. Does that okay. work? Okay. Yeah. I yeah. haven't done much of a deep dive, so. That's fine. I'm not going to go through all of the, the detail that's in here because it's a lot. And and to be honest, I mean, this plan has quite an uphill battle to face in Congress. And we might be talking if it if it goes through, we might be talking like late summer, fall or like who knows um, when we're actually going to know the, the state of it because it's got a lot of work. But I'm going to hit on some high level points. Let First me jump all, in. Can we talk psychology real quick? We I, I love to do this, but like, here's the thing, man. I don't know the bill, but you just spent two trillion bucks. Now you come back asking for another three. Like, it just feels like. And Biden is coming in hot. I mean, he's only yeah, been in yeah. office for two months and he's got four trillion dollars. Like, that he's trying yeah. to YOLO. Like, I, I, I just, I mean, it, it's insane. Yeah. But so this is a two trillion dollar uh, plan that he's introducing, which is roughly, these are rough numbers because I kind of added them up myself. So take it for what it is. But directionally, it'll be right. Uh, about 550 billion in transportation, 325 billion for water, internet, and electric, um, 380 billion for home schools, buildings, and then about the last trillion. So just you know, just the last trillion. Do you ever say yeah, that just when you're yeah, yeah. Um, on workforce and innovation, right? And this is it's a mix of it's called the infrastructure bill, but it's really going back to how we talked about how uh, the stimulus package was had some Biden philosophicalness. Oh yeah, going on in yeah. there too. He's he's throwing in some like anti-racism community-based care like stuff in here too that he's putting in infrastructure which um i guess you could in the in the loose definition of infrastructure you could include that stuff because it's like human infrastructure right what we typically just think of like hard infrastructure um but uh but yeah there to give some highlights um there's a bunch of electrical vehicle investments a couple hundred billion 
There are things about water systems, um, high-speed broadband, uh, affordable housing. There's all sorts of things in here. What I'm going to, um, one, again, it's going to take a while, so we'll have to figure it out. But the things that are of most uh, interest to me, and when I say interest to me, I literally mean interest to Dougal's, not like what I think is going to have the biggest impact, Yeah, are uh, a couple. One is I think workforce development stuff is fascinating. And so with workforce development, I mean, there's there's so much that that could mean and end up going into. And I personally think that there's just a lot of opportunity from, a, this is from more of like a startup investment perspective. I think there's a lot of opportunity in how we get people participating as we've talked about both in the labor force and the capital markets. And so I think there's some interesting stuff that I'm gonna like dive into the detail there to figure out what it might mean. Did we talk, I, I think we missed it. Did we talk about the Google basically certificate program? Uh, we, we mentioned it like for Okay, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. So but I, similar I to some, that, is that what you're saying, Dougals? Or it, it... Yeah, I think that's in the same vein. It's ba- like if you look at okay. workforce development generally, it's investing in uh, training and education for it and opportunities on the other side. So I think that there's there's a lot of room for um, for like the if you look at the talent market, like generally, how do you connect people with jobs of the future? How do you train them and then connect them with jobs of the future? I think there's a lot yeah. there. So that, that that's one that's one place. The other uh, is sorry, I want to interrupt though, like because this is fascinating. I know you have expertise here. Like, is that something where we need government intervention to be better, or can the free markets fill that? The question of need, I think, is always yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it's the the speed um, and the um, the tolerance for ROI. I think is generally okay. what um, often can be looked at if you if you say, do we need? In the end, I believe the the capital, the private capital, the, sorry, the private markets will end up being the people that deliver on this stuff, right? But sometimes you need a little nudge from the government, okay, you know, or cool. maybe not need. Sometimes it's good to have. So I think this is one where it's it's great to have. the um, The other areas going into your non equity, right? There are a couple like tiny Salt Bay investments I talked about, uh, and we oftentimes, right, as you've mentioned. Uh, this podcast is us talking about interesting stuff. This is one where I'm I'm thinking about um, putting a little bit more down, right? Which, look, folks out there, you make your own decisions, right? And think about this for yourself because it yeah. may not fit into your portfolio at all. It may not fit into my portfolio in the end, but but uh, I I put some. We have a couple copper holdings, and uh, and one holding around uh, uranium, thinking about nuclear energy. Yeah. And one holding in a, a renewable um, utility, basically. And those four, I'm actually thinking a lot more about because I've put like smaller, I just, I wanted to see what was happening and like just kind of be involved a little bit. So I put small bets in them, but on the copper side, and this is speculation galore, right? Around this, but um, basically a lot of what's been driving copper recently has been China and China saying like, we need copper for infrastructure. And so China has been like the main consumer of copper if this ends up going through and we're investing in a lot of infrastructure here, the US is gonna need a lot of copper, which China is gonna have. And I think the the price for copper could just go insane uh, in that world. And so that's speculation, but I'm thinking about putting a little bit more there. And then nuclear energy in n- clean nuclear energy, is something that Biden is gonna be betting on. So I'm thinking about putting a little bit more in uranium. Uh, and then the, the, actually the, that, so those are both like short-term, you know, thoughts a little bit. Um, the renewable energy utility that I'm invested in is a long-term play for me, but I'm going to analyze, I'm not going to do anything immediately because I want to see how the talks for this, like kind of keep going and what we actually do. Yeah, I can't sign off. I can't sign off on any of this speculation. Uranium. (laughs) 
Copper. China's got some copper. Oh, Does man. China not have copper? I mean, I don't know. Where, I don't know. Does where China not have is. copper? I got some copper in my house right now. You going to come cut out my pipes? <laughs> is that your investment? Skippy needs pennies. Dougal's buys yeah. copper. <laughs> yeah, I Who know, cares I know. about running I water, know. man? I know. Um, but there, there, so, there's, there's some interesting stuff in here, though. Well, like, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, are they going to that cool trillion that's like not you're not traditional infrastructure? Is that going to get put on the chopping block, you think? Or do we even know at this point? I mean, it, it's hard for me to believe that that two trillion dollars are going to come out the other side of this. I think independent of what ends up getting cut, like that's just to your point. I mean, in two months, you're like spending a lot, and we've got, you know, politically, Congress and you know is is Democrat. Like if you just look along party lines, but neither the Republican Party nor the Democratic Party are homogeneous. Right. And yeah. so you've, you've yep. got some people that are screaming, this is not enough. Why isn't it five trillion? And you've got people that are like, have you seen our balance sheet recently? Like, oh, can we yeah, like let yeah. this simmer down now? So like, it, yeah. it's, it's going to be it's going to be hard for two trillion, independent of what we handed come out the other side. Biden the credit card. And he's trying to put four trillion on it at Nordstrom's, man. Is it are Nordstrom's even around or have they gone out of business? A bad analogy. I saw one. anyway. <laughs> you saw one yeah. we think they're still alive um, it was next to a heckinger and a GameStop, so it's kind of hard to understand i guess th- this is not political because we try to steer clear of that but here's the disappointing thing to me we've talked in previous episodes about being smarter about the return on investment that we get with our government funds and a lot of this stuff is really good like how cool would it be to have uh, countrywide train system like is part of this bill there, there's a and a lot of the infrastructure is way far behind you talk about bridges roads whatever there's probably some good investments in here but what's disappointing to me is there doesn't seem to be like a hey we're spending all this money over here in a way that's not the wisest and so we're going to reallocate some of our current budget it seems like we're just saying, oh, we need in. more taxes and more money and everything else. Not be smart. And listen, I understand how politics works. I understand people get mad and jobs get lost if you cut budgets elsewhere. So it's hard to do. But that doesn't mean it's not the right approach. Yeah. And, and to the I didn't mention this, but to your point, like uh, a lot of the funding for this is supposed to come from increasing the corporate tax rate um, and yeah. well, corporate tax rate and uh, private citizen tax rate for people over four hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, yep. So, yeah, I, I, I hear you. Um, and on, on the political front, I bet you what uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, Buttigieg. he's, I'm just, today's not my, my day. Um, he's probably trying to protect that $550 billion at all costs, right? Because that's oh, yeah. like his like ticket. But uh, yeah, I agree. Like reallocation versus putting new funds in, right? It's just the same as when you look at your own portfolio. Right. Like you could put new money in if you have a strong hypothesis on everything that's in there. But sometimes you go this one over here, my uranium bet. Maybe I should have had, uh, you know, one less Coors Light before I decided to pull the trigger on that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, Fishbowl on your side. I sent you an article this week about non-farm payrolls. So basically the unemployment rate and this graph. Some beautiful man, mathematics. This is in the Wall Street Journal. This graph, uh, let me just give you, at the start of 2020, you're at like 152 million uh, non-farm payrolls. It falls off a cliff to 130 million, and then it's gradually started to rebound. 
and what they did, and this is not the Wall Street Journal's fault. Everybody does this, but it just kills me. Is they just put a freaking trend line that says what we expect to happen over the next 12 months is a continuation of what happened the last three months. And that nonsense just frustrates me so much. So I guess this is just a mini rant on forecasting. I wonder like, how many hours went into that. <laughs> no, there's there's people's job. There's like 12 people at a think tank in Washington that basically they, they could be replaced with a simple linear regression. Actually, simpler than that. They could replace with a toddler, like draw a line in the general direction of this. I just don't know why we give so much credence to forecasts because the forecast in 2020 looked like a trend line that went up and to the right. And what actually happened is nothing of the yeah. sort. It was, um, I can't remember what it was. It might've been the book, How Markets Fail. I don't know if you read that, um, no. but I think it might've been that, in that book, but they were talking about how uh, pe- human beings basically need predictions, right? In order to, so we just, we love them. Like we love predictions, but we can never actually know anything beyond like even a year. And that's aggressive. So one of the, int- I think it was in that book. I could be wrong, but one of the things I was looking at was uh, the like decade prediction going through the, the 20th century. Yeah. And saying, like, if you look at 1900 and what they thought 1910 would be like, and then if you look at 1910, what they thought, and every, like, every decade was basically impossible like, to understand, right? Because the entire globe effectively, like, shifted um, during yeah. that time. Like, no one knew who Vietnam was. Now we're in the Vietnam War. No one. And then, like, you know, it's like that kind of thing where you just go, yeah, like, you, you can never forecast the happen. Vietnam War. Yeah. No. So um, just draw a straight line. Sure. Like I completely agree. You're they're just filling they're just filling a void. And so I guess my there's demand for the forecast. My request from the listeners that want to be smart about this is to think about that every time you see a forecast and say I know that's garbage and here's why and hopefully not let it influence your thinking. But hey, if you want to like just tell yourself a good story, that's great. I'm I'm not going to stop you. Oh. See what I did there, dude? False narrative. I yeah. yes, like aha. All right, all right. I got one more fishbowl topic. Let's hit it. You ready for it? It's uh, and this is this feeds into so many of the things that we that we've talked about um over the last our lives, basically our our, our investment conversations, but especially over the last weeks, we've mentioned a lot about and today even we we mentioned a lot about debt, a lot about foolishness. A lot about psychology, a lot about FOMO. I, I I don't know if this is pronounced Archegos or Archegos. So we're gonna go Archegos because it just feels fancy it, to me. It sounds cooler, even yeah. though I think it's wrong. Kind of like dog coin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we're gonna go Archegos. Do you have you looked have you looked into this? Oh, a little bit, man. Was it really right. one to twenty leverage? Was it really? It's well, it's unclear. That's 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 part of the thing. So we got. I got a some a little bit of a I, I saw on the periphery like some of the things that were going on, but they weren't adding up in my head and that like I didn't put them all together. And then we got a little bit of listener mail um last Sunday that 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 uh that also like that really tipped me onto what was going on. And even after we got off the the pod last week, you sent me something that was like, what the heck is this? Which was also connected here, right? But it, there were all these like little nuggets. And so what basically went down, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk through some slight history and then like a timeline really quickly and then start getting to the outcomes. History so, lesson. Yes. Sit down people. 
so Bill Huang, who was, uh, he ran Tiger Asia, uh, which is part of Tiger Global, like a really big um, investment, private equity, et cetera, just financial fund. And he ran that. Um, there was a, there was some, I'm just, I'm just going to call insider trading allegations for which he had to pay about $40 million for. So then he left there and started a family investment office in 2013. And that's Arkegos. So family investment office means it's basically just his money. So he had about $10 billion, I guess, that he wanted to invest at that time. Um, and so this is a $10 billion fund he's running, just a good old family investment office. I was So I wasn't clear on that. This, I mean, because a family investment, sometimes you're running other people's money. This is all his it's, cash. It, from, from everything I read, it's just his cash. Okay. His okay. family's cash, right? Okay. So that happened in 2013. Basically from 2013 until March 24th, last week of 2021, like no one even cared. Like no one even, no one in the world um, outside of anyone that was dealing directly with him, like knew this fund existed. It hasn't really done anything, right? Just a, a big old family investment office. Then what started happening was last Wednesday, these, what I'll, I'll call them like secret big block trades started happening. So on March 24th, Viacom CBS's stock fell, um, it had fallen like 9% the day before, and it was 30% off of its Monday high by the end of the day last Wednesday, right? And so so basically people are just saying, this, these are nuggets I'm talking about. People are like, Viacom just dropped 30%. Like, what the, <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's seemingly random. no reason, right? Yep. Then on the 25th, so last Thursday, Huang had a conference call with, the, with banks saying like, can you hold off on selling shares um, because his, uh, his swap trades, like he's hoping that they, they bounce back. And I'll get into like the swaps and stuff in a bit after I go through the timeline. Then on Friday, you see Goldman sell $10 billion in stock. Morgan Stanley sold eight billion dollars in stock. Deutsche Bank sold four billion. There's some others, but like, but those are yeah. those are big block trades, right? So by market close on Friday, shares of Viacom, CBS had fallen fifty percent for the week, right? So like huge, huge drops. And this is still when folks are just like, what, the, like, what's going on here? There must be something behind it. So over the weekend, it started coming out of like, I we think this is tied to an overleveraged um, hedge fund, and it might be. Arkega started coming out over the weekend, yeah. but on Monday it became clear. Um, there are some big losses. I'll skip a little bit, but uh, so on Monday, a Nomura Holdings said it probably lost about $2 billion and Credit Suisse said it's going to be a big number, but they didn't give any more detail. That number on Tuesday, they disclosed is $5 billion. So that, that's like a brief timeline of the last week. I just want to jump in. Just so, you know, you in, uh, if I'm ever making this mistake, I want you to correct me, but I don't think you have to worry. So when I, uh, pay fines for alleged insider trading for 40 million and then my net worth appears to be about 10 billion if i think i need leverage to continue to grow my wealth at that point i want you to throw something at me preferably a shoe or something like what is with these people and these banks too like why is there a desire for more when you're talking about a 10 billion dollar figure for your family yeah. to, to your point they did throw things at him those things have to be their checkbooks. Yeah, and they said, and this is complete speculation, but I I have seen a 20 to one figure. So let's just run with that crazy example. Like your family is worth 10 billion bucks and you can't sit around and, and do conservative investments and make 7% a year for the rest of your life. Like you no. have to lever up it's, and make things risky it's, it's, and 
Dude, we're talking about FOMO. It's FOMO, man. And um, at some point, it becomes not about money. It becomes about a scoreboard, I think, for folks. And uh, and I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous. I agree. But on the point of leverage, he was using swaps, right? And I think there were other like derivatives he was using. But basically, to to give like from from what I believe, from what I've read, that he was doing um, a swap in this case is a derivative instrument where you pay a fee to a bank, and that bank will pay you back the return. And so if it's, and that's where the leverage comes from, right? Is I'm paying you, I'm gonna make up numbers. I'm paying you $1,000 and you might end up paying me $30,000 if the thing goes up. Now to the, to the literally smarmy um, text that you sent me, like, I think it was four months ago when I was texting you about the amount of margin debt, you said like debt only matters when things go down, right? Yeah. That, so here's an example, right? Basically what happened here is that the, he was highly concentrated um, in the, the leverage swaps, the bets that he was making in Viacom, CBS, Discovery, and then some Chinese tech firms. This also ties back to the, the, what we talked about last time with what was going on with the China firms too, right? Yeah. So he was highly concentrated in these companies and their stocks started going down and they were going down enough that the banks were like, we need the, our money back like, or we need more collateral. I'll say we need more collateral yes. so that you can secure uh, what we're giving to you. And he was like, I don't have that collateral because I'm the number I saw was eight. What you saw was 20. Regardless, they're both silly. Yeah. Um, he, he was so over leveraged and so he couldn't pay it. And so then they had to sell their stock in order just to have liquidity right, and coverage. Um, and mm-hmm. so the, this is, I think uh, this is when we, when we start to see how I'll, I'll call them small things. Those big dollars can cause big ripples. Right. Because this was a to go back to what I said before, this is a family investment office that was started eight years ago that no one even basically knew existed until last week. And that caused significant losses, five billion dollars for Credit Suisse, who's also been doing other silliness lately. Right. Like significant losses that we didn't even know existed. And that's the, the, the second point I'll bring up is around uh, disclosure obligations. And Yellen is starting to do some yelling around this um, because Basically, it's a family office, right? So disclosure um, of positions is looser, generally for family offices. We've talked about 13Fs, which is a disclosure mm-hmm. obligation for hedge funds. But so it's looser there. And swaps are make it like real tough to see what's going on. Because not only does, does I'm just going to call him Bill. Sorry for the disrespect, but you're causing our financial, causing financial ruckus. So Bill basically didn't own stock. Like he didn't have the positions, first of all. And none of the banks knew what was like, they couldn't see the full picture. And so the banks weren't even clear because you have, you know, whatever it was, like, it looks like 10 plus banks that you have different swap yeah. positions on. So they don't see how much he's, he's accumulating here. I mean, it's the, the, uh, the disclosure situation here, I think is, is crazy. And the ruckus it can cause um, one last stat. And then I'd love to, to get your, your view more. Um, so we're talking about equity derivatives. I saw a stat in the, the New York times that said the amount of outstanding equity derivatives, including swaps like he was using uh, and other related ones on stocks listed in the United States more than doubled from $50 billion at the end of 2015 to more than $110 billion during the first half of 2020, which was the, it's the most recent data from the Bank for International Settlements. So this is not just a, this is not just Billy, Billy boy, right? This is happening in a more systemic fashion. This is fascinating. I think I'm gonna actually uh, spend some more time on it because I, I certainly am not an expert in swaps or derivatives, but 
if you think about like asset back lending, like a lot of times if I go into a bank for a car loan, one of the first things I do is make sure no one else owns that car. Um, it seems like as the financial instruments get more opaque, it gets to the point where it's really hard to know what ripple effects might be caused. If you just talk about Viacom C CBS, like that company was valued for a brief time, 35% ish less than it was the previous week, pretty much because of one guy with really only $10 billion, you know, and yeah. some bank backing. Like that is crazy. I don't know the market cap of that company off the top of my head. Uh, but that's a huge movement well, in half value. Of what it was. Gosh, it's crazy. Yeah. It's just crazy. It, so it's insane. Um, yeah. uh, sorry for, for those that uh, that haven't seen it. We've mentioned it before, but the Big Short is like a, is a really it's a it's a great way to break down some of this stuff simply. It was about the 2008 uh, situation, which many people I think still think of as the housing bubble. But I think it's interesting, like that 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 breaks down how it's like bet upon bet upon bet. Um, in the opacity that can occur um, in the financial markets. Because here we're just, we're going one degree of how dangerous it is, but you can start to get to like, he's betting through a bank that uh, Viacom CBS is going to go up and then others can can take a position on his bet in theory. I'm, I'm not saying that they did for this situation, but broadly it just starts to get, like, you don't need all that to your point. Like, come on. Well, and I, I don't think all the banks understood that they might be, effectively backing the same asset it, when it yeah, goes to exactly. the collateral piece um yeah on the recommendation front big short is great i recommend the book more than the movie but that's just me movie wise i'd go margin call is brad pitt margin call is a great movie is brad pitt in the book because if i can't see those cheekbones why am i reading <laughs> oh man yeah i'm let's call it a day brad pitt. <laughs>